Good morning. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, I have I have a helper today. Um, we can't really decide what his name is going to be because every time we think of a name, we remember that there's someone with that name in the congregation, and so we don't want to make it awkward. And so I, I think I'm just going to call him Captain today. I think that's inappropriate, so I will refer to Captain. He's just going to help uh, just a little bit today. Uh, and in no way, shape, or form am I using my platform here to make note that Kentucky is 6-0 in football. I would never do that. Like, that would be inappropriate of me as a pastor to leverage my position for that. But, um, yeah. So, uh, if, if, you, if you were given a name tag, and other than your name, you were told to fill out something on it, what would it say? What, what, what if the world saw you, what is it that the world would label you as? I, I think probably, like it or not, this is something that, uh, that we are labeled by, is our age. I used to have people, um, re- really recently, uh, that would say, man, you're really young to be a pastor, now they just comment on my gray hair. And so I can relate to this particular name tag. Uh, profession is one. Uh, people see you or know you as, as what you do uh, in life. You're labeled as your career. Uh, hobbies, I think, is another one uh, that, that we are defined by, we are labeled by, we are hunters and fishermen and, and other things that we do in Wyoming. Those are the top two in my head. Uh, you, if you were thinking yourself how I would label um, me, you would probably put that you are a, a mom or a dad, you're a parent, something that we're typically labeled as. Uh, the same kind of goes your, your husband uh, or a wife. Now, now, Captain is not a wife. This is just for illustration. Uh, he, he would be a husband in this example. Uh, but, but what if, if you took a step back and said, well, that's how the world sees me, but there are probably some name tags that I, I wouldn't necessarily wear, or there are name tags that I would be horrified if people saw they were on me. Like if people knew that you were insecure or that you struggled with anxiety or depression, maybe? It's a beneath-the-surface name tag. Or what if, if you were just getting really, really honest with yourself as you were writing your name tag, you just said that you were broken? Who are you? What's on your name tag? How would you fill it out? This idea of identity isn't something that that we haven't talked about. We've spent quite some time talking about who we are as followers of Christ, as human beings, and it's, it's important. It's a difficult question to answer, though. It's a really difficult question for us to answer. This isn't something, though, that, that's new. This isn't something that we, in, as 2021 churchgoers, Christians, or prospective followers of Christ, are, are just now coming up with. It's actually been something that the church has dealt with since its inception. Since the very beginning of the church, the apostles and the writers of our word were dealing with this idea of who we are. What's our identity? What's on our name tag? The Apostle Paul wrote at length uh, about who specifically the church was going to be. Was it, was it Judaism or, or like a sect of Judaism or was it together all different? 
Were we Jews or Gentiles? How, how does that relationship work? It, it, are we defined by the law or grace? Like there, there's tension in us, in the church, as we try to figure out who in the world we are. Probably the best example, I think, or at least for me, the most clear example as we talk about who we are in Christ, who we are as human beings, is found in the book of Ephesians. And so what I want to do over the course of the next six weeks is just do a deep dive into this particular book. Now, we've done uh, some topical sermons. We've been through a season of topical, biblically-based sermons. Uh, I am desperate for us just to dive headfirst into one particular book and spend an extensive amount of time there. I need that. I crave that. And I hope that you will join me uh, not just here on Sunday mornings, but throughout our weeks and read through this thing that God, I believe, is going to do through this letter that we read together. So, uh, the book of Ephesians uh, is a—it's uh, an amazing, amazing book. And we're going to read through chapter 1 today, but before we jump into it, I, I just want to give us some background information, because I think this information will actually determine how we read and how we interpret this particular narrative. So, uh, most of us— sit here today, if we're familiar with the book of Ephesians, like, well, that's one of Paul's letters, right? Like, it's a Pauline epistle. And I'm with you. Certainly where I would sit and stand and where I have ended up, but you need to know that there are actually some questions around who actually wrote this particular book. So, so there are questions on if this was something that Paul actually wrote, and it's because it's different a little bit than some of his other epistles. Uh, for example, in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul references that he has heard of the church's faith. I have heard of your faith, is what he says. Now, that's, that's interesting, considering that Paul had spent three years, according to Acts chapter 19, planting the church in Ephesus. And if you read other places in the Bible where Paul references churches that he has spent time, he's very specific, he's very clear. For him to say, well, I've just heard of your faith, it, it raises a question. Also, some of the earliest manuscripts didn't list Ephesus as its destination. In chapter 1, verse 1, the earliest of manuscripts did not have Ephesus listed. So there's two things there. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? Why are we talking about it? So, so give me a couple of different things. One, maybe Paul wrote this letter and he just changed his style. Maybe it's just different. I get it. I write differently sometimes, depending on who my audience is. It's very possible. Some scholars suggest that maybe a disciple of Paul wrote this particular epistle. Maybe. Where I land is a position that other scholars take that Paul actually wrote this letter to a region of churches in Asia Minor. So, so he sits down and he pins a letter to a group or a region of believers. And he sends them out. And then when the letter arrives at the church or in front of the congregation, it is transcribed and it's addressed to that specific church. Now, if that's the case, that, that's something that we would do here all the time. If you imagine we send a letter out to you from the church, it's a form letter, it has all the same information in the body, but we would personalize it for you. We would all get the same information, but the letter would be personalized. That perhaps is what happens here in the book of Ephesians. Now, now why is this important? Why are we spending time on it? When you read Paul's letters, this is so important, when you read Paul's letters, you have to take into account the cultural and the social and the contextual situation. You can't ignore it. 
Paul wrote another letter to Timothy. It was actually written to uh, the church of Ephesus, or while Timothy was in Ephesus. And as he's writing that letter, there are some cultural and social implications that we have to take into account when we read in that letter. If you don't, then you are going to misunderstand. The book of Ephesians, if it is a general letter, and this is why it's so key, then it should be generally accepted. So, so the truths aren't specific to an individual situation. We're not reading someone else's mail. This was a general letter for all of the churches in the area. And so what that does is it allows me, as I'm reading this letter, to put down my guard a little bit. I, I, I can just soak in the words. I don't turn my brain off, but it allows me to sit back and hear God's voice in a way that just transforms me. That's why Ephesians is so amazing. And so that's what I would invite you to do today, over the course of the next five weeks or so, is for you to sit back, open your heart, and let God speak to you through this amazing, amazing epistle. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and following. It says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now I'm going to stop there for a second. He chose us. Later on here we'll read, the, they use the word predestined us. So right away I get kind of excited thinking about there's a God who picked me to be on his team. As someone who is not athletic at all, I spent my fair share of time waiting to be the last picked. It's the nature of who I am. I'm okay with it. Here, it's not the case. I am chosen. I'm predestined. Now, we can't just skip over that without talking a little bit about this argument of God's sovereignty versus free will. Predestination versus free will. If you've been in church more than a few times, I'm sure you've heard this. There are literally churches who have separated because of this argument. Different sects of Christianity. One of them that would hold fast that says, well, you know, free will is there, but, but really, uh, you're predestined. God has chose you. He knew before the beginning of time. And so it's just a, you kind of going through the motions God already knew. The other side of the argument is, no, 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 that, that can't be who God is because there is free will. I have the right to choose to follow God or to not follow God. People get very, very particular about this argument. Very particular. And I get it. it it's difficult. But what I want to do, just real quick, as we address it, is just talk about where I think the Scripture sits in this. Is it free will? Or is it God's sovereignty? So I think you can make a case for both. There are texts, there are scriptures that, that I think make a solid argument for predestination. Romans 8, 29 and 34, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed by the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. John says this, no one can come to me 
unless the Father, so this is Jesus' words, who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up that last day. God is sovereign. God knows. We've talked about that. All-knowing, all-powerful, powerful, all-present. But if you flip over to other verses, free will seems to come into play. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are tired and weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that whosoever, whoever, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Peter writes in 2 Peter, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. How do we reconcile two seemingly competing ideas? I don't believe the Bible contradicts itself. itself. I don't believe God contradicts himself, so which is it? Is it predestination or free will? I think the answer is maybe yes. How do we understand this? How do we reconcile? I think we first have to sit foundationally with this idea that we aren't God. The writer of Isaiah says this, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This idea of free will and predestination is what scholars call an antimony. So two apparently mutually exclusive truths which must be held simultaneously. Two things that we would normally say are mutually exclusive, but because God is bigger than us, they must be held as truth. So which is it? Yeah. It's confusing. It makes my head want to explode. I wish I had all the answers. I wish I was able to definitively say one way or another, this is how it is. But unfortunately, I'm limited. So are you. And I think actually, that might be one of the beauties and joys of heaven, is as we step into paradise, as we step into eternity with our creator, it's all going to make sense. There are things that we have to step out in faith today and say, okay, God, I don't get this, but I'm going to believe and trust in you so that tomorrow when I'm in your presence, I'll figure it out. One commentator, I'll just read this and we'll move on, I promise. One commentator says this, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, the Bible also teaches that people can make choices. If you try to merge the two ideas, you will distort the truth. If you try to remove all the tension between the two, you will destroy one or the other of the truths and possibly both. We say apparently mutually exclusive truths because the truths cannot actually be mutually exclusive. If they were, God would become the author of the impossible and perhaps even the nonsense. They appear mutually exclusive to us because of a limitation either to our information or our intelligence or both. The truths are not mutually exclusive to God. So as we read these verses about being chosen and predestined, don't put your guard up. Don't, don't take a position that doesn't need to be taken. Just soak it in. Free will, God's sovereignty, somehow, somehow, he makes it work. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption. So, so we, we learned first off that we are chosen, that we are picked, that we are selected to be on God's team. The second thing that we see from Paul's writing is that we are adopted to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. 
to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. So, so God has chosen us, and he's adopted us. One of the greatest joys that I have as a pastor is to be able to walk alongside and witness families who finalize the adoption process. It's amazing. After years of work and paperwork and thousands and thousands of dollars and, and I'm sure stress and heartache and fear, you get to the moment where you're standing in front of the judge and you as a family answer some questions and the judge decrees that you, as parents, have adopted the child and you, as children, have been adopted by the parents so that when the kids leave that room, they are sons and daughters. When the parents leave their room, they are mothers and fathers. It's amazing. It's beautiful. A legal transaction occurs there in that courtroom. That's exactly what Paul says here. It's exactly what happens when we step into a relationship with Christ. When, when, you, when you realize that you have been chosen and selected, you step into a relationship with Jesus. He becomes Lord of your life. Paul says you are then adopted legally, legally, into the family of God. You become his child. You're granted rights as a child of God. So Paul says that because we have been chosen, because we have been adopted, we are entitled to three things. There are three kind of gifts or rights that we get through this process. Verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and all understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things. We'll come back to this in a couple of weeks, just so you know. In heaven and on earth under Christ. So, because you were chosen, because you have been adopted, you first and foremost have rights to redemption. You're redeemed. Now, the, the, the thing about life on this side of eternity is that we essentially are the sum of our poor decisions and our good decisions, right? Like everything we do builds and builds and builds. And so if I make bad, bad decisions, I, I can overcome it, but, but that's going to be in my past. I am the sum of my good decisions and my bad decisions, which, okay, sometimes is okay, but sometimes it's not. I have physical scars on my body from poor decisions that I have made. I literally have a dent in my head. I, I kid you not. I have mental scars for things that I have seen and things that I have exposed myself to. I have emotional scars for the heartaches that I have incurred and the frustrations that I've had in life. I have spiritual scars from, from the journey that, that I took resisting God's will for my life. I am a scarred, broken individual, but if I'm reading this correctly, and if I understand exactly what redemption means, well, through my relationship with Christ, through my adoption, I have been made new. God doesn't push it aside. He doesn't save it for later. He absolves it. He vindicates it. He redeems it. I'm redeemed through my relationship with Jesus Christ. And if that were all I got, 
I'd be good to go. That's good enough for me. But, but Paul continues. Verses 11 and following. He says this. He says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in the conformity with the promise of his will. Verse 12. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Now the New International Version actually changes uh, how I have always read verse 11 in the English Standard Version, which says that we have an inheritance. Because we have been chosen, because we have been adopted, we have rights to an inheritance. We, we were given something that, that we then can expect in the future. We have something as legal sons and daughters, as heirs, we have something waiting for us, an inheritance. I love the implications of this for, for lots of reasons, but, but I want to point out here how this just elaborates on the paternal relationship of our God. This idea that we have a Father in heaven who loves us so much that he would send his Son to die in our place even though we don't deserve it so that we can step into an inheritance and have rights to something this world can't provide. Redeemed, we're beneficiaries, Verse 13 says this, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Verse 14, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of God. Of his glory. So you have been redeemed. You are beneficiaries of something spectacular. And so you don't forget, and so you don't doubt even for a second, you have been sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have been stamped, marked by God. He says that the reason that you have been stamped by God, the reason you have the Holy Spirit, is so that you have a deposit guaranteeing exactly what your inheritance is. It's basically God is handing you through the power of the Holy Spirit a living will and says, this is what's coming to you. This is what you have earned being an adopted son and daughter. So, redeemed, beneficiaries, marked. Back to the question. Who are you? What if we're asking the wrong question altogether? What if the idea of who are you, the question who are you, what, what if these labels that we put on ourselves were insignificant or weren't as significant as maybe we make them? What if the question isn't who am I? but whose am I? What if the question isn't who am I, but whose am I? Here, here's the deal, and, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't. If your identity is sourced from who you are, if your identity is here, if this is where you find who you are, right here in your identity, if your identity is sourced from here, it will always eventually fail you. It's just a matter of time. If this is where you find your identity, it's a ticking time bomb. Your age will always catch up with you. 
your insecurity, it's going to cripple you. Your, your spouse, you're not going to live forever. Your hobbies, if you define yourself by the labels you wear on the outside, if your identity is wrapped up in who, it's just a matter of time before it crumbles and falls. If, however, your identity is sourced from whose you are, this world cannot touch it. Can't. It's impossible. Jesus illustrates this better, perhaps, than anyone else. Uh, we talk about someone who knew exactly whose he was. He does something that, that's kind of, kind of bizarre. John chapter 13 records, just moments before Jesus was arrested, this event. It was just before the Passover feast, or festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew, and this is so important, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God, and he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus was the king. Alpha, the and Omega beginning and the end. And, and he steps away from the table. And he does something that no king would ever do. He washes feet. Stinky, dirty, disgusting feet. You understand? Kings don't wash feet. That's not what they do. Kings have people who wash their feet for them. And so you have to imagine what his disciples were thinking when they saw this rabbi, their master, get up and do this bizarre thing. So much so that Peter said, no, 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 you can't wash my feet, Jesus. Jesus was so secure in who he was because he knew exactly whose he was. He never doubted for a second. He was confident in who he was because he knew he came from God and he was returning to God. And it allowed him to walk and do things that this world said he shouldn't do. What happens? What happens when we shift focus in our lives from who to whose? But what, what happens if these name tags aren't how we define ourselves? And I'm going to illustrate something here. Hope I don't offend anybody. Ladies, control yourself. I'm going to take off uh, Captain's shirt here for a second. What happens if instead of the labels that we give ourselves or the ones the world gives us, we begin to define ourselves as chosen and adopted. And then, then because we are chosen and adopted, what, what if then we reconcile, we realize that, hey, we're, we're redeemed. That's who I am. Man, 
if I'm redeemed, that means that I'm a beneficiary. I have an inheritance waiting for me. And just so I don't forget, God says that I've been sealed with the power of the Holy Spirit. What happens if we begin to think about ourselves, not, not through these labels, but through this concept, this idea that we are children of God? What changes when you begin to shift focus from who to whose? So it changes everything. It changes everything. If this is where I source my identity, I can survive anything the world throws to or at me. If this is how I define myself versus these, there's nothing I can't handle. You have to understand, as a pastor, um, if that's how I label myself, what happens if my identity is wrapped up in being a pastor and I preach a flat sermon, a bad sermon? You've heard them. Come on. What happens when I fall flat? Well, I'm wrecked. I lose my identity. But if who I am is less important than whose I am, well, I have confidence to write another sermon, to give it another stab, to do it again. If my identity is sourced from whose I am, then when my kids... My kids drive me insane and, and I lose my mind even though I shouldn't. I realize that maybe, yeah, maybe I wasn't a good dad. But through this, maybe, maybe there's hope I could be better. If, if my identity is sourced from whose I am and not who I am, then when I lose my job, I don't lose my identity. That, 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 that when I lose my health, I don't lose my identity. When I lose my mind... Don't lose my identity. What happens? What happens if you begin reconciling who you are through whose you are? Paul says in verse 17 through 19, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And here it is, 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Paul says that if you begin to reconcile your life through whose you are and not who you are, you're high. the eyes of your heart are enlightened. They're opened. You see things differently. Church, because of whose we are, my hope, my hope is that we have confidence in who we are. Because of whose we are, my prayer for you is that you have confidence in who you are. So here's a question. I'm going to end right here. Whose are you? Whose are you? <laughs>